turn to your Bibles to the very beginning of the New Testament letter of Paul to the Colossians. You'll find it on page 1182 of the Pew Bibles. We're going to be starting a, a series this morning looking at the message of this book and its importance for the church today. So let's read together just the first eight verses. And uh, remember that this is the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Amen. Um, folks, if you grab your Bibles and have them open there at uh, Colossians, uh, Monty's already said it's a, a new series for us, so um, for, for those folks who maybe aren't with us very often, um, I, I suppose that our normal pattern of Bible teaching here or, or preaching is to, to take a, a book of the Bible and to teach our way through it. Uh, sometimes we take the longer books and break them up. So in the autumn time, we look together at the, the life of Joseph um, and I think we were pleasantly surprised to find that there's maybe a bit more going on with Joseph than we remember from Sunday school days. And I know a lot of people had a sense of God uh, speaking to them through that part of his word. So today we're, we're moving. This is going to feel quite different. It's not, not a life story. It's not a biography as that chunk of Genesis was when we looked at the the story of Joseph, but instead we're coming to one of the letters uh, Paul wrote to a particular church. So please have that open uh, before you, that opening part of the book of Colossians, uh, and let me pray. Um, Lord, we thank you for your word in all of its richness. Uh, we thank you for this incredible um, way in which you've spoken to us and then given us a record of what you've said. Lord, without listening to your voice, we simply don't live life well. Your words are life to us. So we pray right now, early in this new year, uh, that you'd come again and speak to us through this, this part of your word. Come and give us the things that we need so that we might recognize you and hear your voice and also, Lord, see what it is you're calling us to be and to do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
I'll let the siren go just to... Um, you are not enough. You're not... You're simply not enough. It's a message that we hear countless times from cradle to grave. Sometimes we hear it and the occasion on which we hear it was so painful and so um, difficult for us that it lives on with us. Uh, the, the pain uh, is something that, that maybe lives, lives with us far into the future. But in another way, we go through life and hear this uh, this phrase, this idea, hear these words said to us so many times that they actually just become part of who we are, our identity, our self-understanding. It, it begins while we're still in the womb. Uh, it's, first of all, it's our, our mom who is told that she's probably not doing enough. All the books you can read and things you can listen to about what a, an expectant mother should do to give their child the best start in life. And already the pressure is mounting. Am I doing enough? Once we're born, the expectations just continue to mount. This mother who, who feeds her own son and knows that the health visitor is going to show up with the way scales, did I give him enough? This, uh, these parents who have this young daughter and read the books about how to have a contented baby or, you know, are we, are we giving them enough sleep? Together they're striving to do everything that they can to give this kid the best start in life, but still there's that nagging sense that it's, it's just never quite enough. And, and soon the kids start to develop, they start to walk and they talk, but are they walking well enough and talking clearly enough? What about their reading age? Is it enough? Then there are the PIMS and the PIES, those indicators of ability in, in mathematics or English. Are those scores, are they right? Are they high enough? They'd better be because if they're not, then our kid might not get into the, the school. They might not get the score that they need to get into the school that they need. And all the while, we're haunted with the question, am I enough? Are my kids doing well enough? And we don't need to worry too much about transmitting that pressure from parent to child. It seems to just happen quite naturally. As they move through late primary school and into their lower teens, they become also conscious of the expectations mounting on them. I was talking to a teenager about this very recently, and I asked him, do you, do you have any sense of expectations in your life that, that weigh on you, that get you down, expectations that you struggle with? Yep. I'm wondering, am I doing well enough in my tests and exams at school? Am I playing enough instruments at the right grades? Am I excelling in the right sports? Do I have enough friends? Am I enough? And it only escalates actually as we go up through school. Will my GCSE grades be good enough to get me the offers that I need? 
Will my A-levels be good enough to turn those offers into a, a place at university? Will the degree that I'm studying actually open any doors? Will it get me a job? Will I have enough? Am I enough? As, as younger folks, um, I, I wonder if we're hoping that that phase in our lives will end. We'll, we'll get the job, we'll, and, and then those pressures will disappear. We'll find contentment. We'll finally feel comfortable in our own skin. Doesn't seem to be the way it works out. The nagging voices, they, they don't go away. They simply change tone a, a fraction and, and visit different topics. All the way through our adult lives too, this question keeps coming back to us. We're haunted. You're not enough. The am I attractive enough that we used to be haunted by when we were single becomes am I a good enough spouse? Am I a good enough parent? The middle-aged guy, he, he's forgotten what it was like to, to be under pressure to get good GCSEs or A-levels or even a degree, but he, but he knows well enough what it's like to show up in the workplace and still wonder every day whether he's able for enough. And as he approaches the end of his, his working life, he, he starts to wonder whether he achieved enough whether the pension pot by now has accumulated enough and whether he's had influence enough. All, all through our lives, these questions haunt us. And just in case we're the kind of person who's wired for, for not struggling with those questions, there's an army of advertisers just ready to keep all this in front of us every day. Your teeth aren't white enough or straight enough. Your hair's not shiny enough. Your holidays aren't fun enough. Your cards and phones aren't cool enough. Folks, I've said it's a question that might just run with us through the whole of our lives. I'm pretty sure I've spent time with people at the end of life and on, quite literally on their deathbed have had a sense from them that they still are struggling. Did I do enough? Have I been enough? Am I enough? We're not the first people in history to struggle with questions like this, with pressures like this. Towards the end of the first century, there's a, a small community a bunch of young Christians in a city called Colossae, modern-day Turkey. And they, too, were being told that they weren't enough. And it's to this community that Paul writes this short letter that we're going to look at for uh, a number of weeks in the early months of 2019. We're going to start with it this morning. So Paul wrote this letter while he's in prison. A number of his letters he, he wrote... People aren't sure which prison he was in with some of the letters. Possibly and probably he's writing from Rome when he's awaiting a, a trial with Caesar. Most of the letters that Paul writes, he writes to people that he knows because he either planted uh, the church um, on a, one of his missionary journeys and then he's following up years later and writing to them, or else he's, he's visited them 
on his travels. Somebody else maybe planted them, but he, he visited them. Paul didn't plant this church or ever visit it. The, the church was planted by a guy called Epaphras. Paul spent a bit of time uh, at one stage in the, the city of Ephesus, working in the church there, and it was there that he met Epaphras. Epaphras comes from Colossae. Colossae is about 170 kilometers, just over 100 miles east of Ephesus. So, as I say, in modern-day Turkey. When Paul's met Epaphras, I'm going to imagine that they get to know each other. And somewhere along the line, Paul sends him back home. He says, Epaphras, it's great you've been here with us in Ephesus. It's great you've heard about Jesus. Now go back to Colossae. Because we need a church there and in those neighboring towns of Laodicea and Heropolis. So Paul, Paul then writes this letter. How does he get to write this letter? Well, let's imagine Epaphras does what Paul suggested. He goes back to Colossae. He's involved in the, the planting and growth of a new church there. But some point later, he's arrested. And he ends up that his path coincides again with the Apostle Paul. So this is probably how Paul gets to hear about Colossae and the church that's there and how he gets a bit of insight into what's really going on in that church. Without that knowledge and that insight, he couldn't have written the letter that we're going to be looking at these next uh, number of weeks. What he hears from Epaphras, I think we can discern it from the letter uh, these letters are interesting. It's like a communication where you only get to hear one half, so you have to guess a little bit what the other half is. But I'm going to imagine that what Epaphras has said to him is, Paul, things are going really well in Colossae. Really vibrant church, new believers who want to grow in Jesus, but they're under pressure. There are a couple of big questions, big struggles on their horizon. So whenever you read one of Paul's letters, it's, it's worth taking a, a moment to work out, well, what are the particular issues that Paul might be addressing in this letter? His, his letters aren't all the same because each one is to a different community and is addressing their particular needs. So what's the problem in Colossae? Well, imagine for a second that you're part of this young church. It's probably in its second century. Let's imagine that it's the same age um, I'm going to say not, not the same age as Kirkpatrick. Kirkpatrick's 100 years old. Let's imagine I, the ministry that I've been leading here is 15 years old. So if you imagine those of you who were around 15 years ago, that the thing that we started here was brand new from scratch and there were no other churches in Belfast. We were it you probably can see how that would make a difference. We'd have much less sense of infrastructure, much less sense of tradition, much less sense of being part of something bigger. It's just us. Little old us in the middle of this big city. So these young Christians, they had until recently, they're, they're not predominantly Jewish. These are, are Gentiles. They're non-Jews. Okay? So until very recently, they'd been worshipping not the Christian God, not the Jewish God. They had been worshipping the gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon. 
I don't know how much you know about that. I'm no expert in it. But what I understand is you didn't have just one God who was over the whole of life. You had loads of gods, and you turned to different ones for different parts of life. So, for example, if you were having trouble with your sex life, Aphrodite was the god who looked after that. Hermes was the go-to god for anybody who was having money troubles. Apollo had an interest in music and the arts. So there were all these different gods who looked after the whole range then of human life. So if you're living in Colossae, and that's your background, and you start to talk about following Jesus Christ, it's going to raise some questions with your friends. They're going to say, you're mad. Only one God? A Galilean crucified by Rome? Who's going to help you with your family problems? Who's going to help with the, the money issues when they arise? Only one God? You're going to need more than that. that that's not enough. So these uh, young uh, believers in Colossae, they're under pressure from the culture in general. They're Gentile neighbors, but it seems they also had a second problem. Since the, the Christian faith had grown out of Jewish roots, the early churches had an ongoing problem with trying to understand what's our relationship with the, the millennia of faith in the living God that comes to us from the Jewish nation? What's our relationship to the Jewish faith? And what we find in a number of the churches is that Jewish Christians are putting pressure on new young Gentile believers to follow Jewish law and to add in extra rules about faith. You say you found new life in Jesus Christ, they might say, but that's not enough. You need to come under Jewish law. You need to start keeping our kosher food laws. You need to practice the holy days that we practice. You need to practice circumcision the way we practice it. And if you know Paul's letters, you'll know that that, that issue arises in, in other places too, particularly in the letter to the Galatians. Pressures from the culture saying, it can't be just Jesus, that's never enough. Pressures from inside their own church saying it can't be just faith in Jesus. There's a whole lot of other stuff you need to do. That, that could never be enough. Very different pressures, but maybe in the end saying something quite similar. Faith in Jesus isn't enough. So Paul wasn't involved in founding this church this church in Colossae. But we'll see it when we read this letter. He, he's totally committed to these guys, to those believers there. The Colossians have a place in his heart. So he takes some time to, to write to them, to address these issues. He, he must have been loved and respected among them because we, we have a sense that, that his, his letter is going to land and people are going to take it to heart. His message in a nutshell, what's Paul going to say in this letter? When you've got Jesus, you have it all. When you've got Jesus, you have enough. 
He is over everything. Everything is for him. Everything belongs to him. When you have Jesus, you have enough. We're going to see how he shares that message, how he develops it in the weeks to come. But this morning we're going to take just a moment to get, get up and running and get this short letter started. Look at verses 1 to 8 with me, the passage we read. Paul does a couple of things. Says hi, says hello, introduces himself in the way that he does with all of his letters. I've heard sermons where the preacher takes 20 minutes talking through the address. I'm not going to do that today because they haven't been the best sermons I've ever heard. All right? So he introduces himself. Uh, We can pick up on that as we go forward. But it's lovely how he starts his letter. It's just beautiful to see this master pastor begin his work. How does he begin? So he jumps straight in with a bit bit of criticism. I've heard you're being distracted from Jesus. No. Does he go straight into warning them? Look out that you don't slide back into that paganism or, or get sucked into to Jewish legalism on the, on the other hand? No. He's going to talk about those things and, and there'll be time to do that, but that's not where he starts. First thing he says, verse 3, we always thank God when we pray for you. Can you imagine what that was like? These guys don't get the letter. It's not in printed form. They just hear it when somebody reads it out in their church. Paul, the the hero of that early church, the, the most influential figure in that network of churches all over the Roman Empire, he writes to them and he says, anytime I think of you, I thank God. Isn't that just wonderful? What a gracious pastor. Sometimes pastors are tempted to write off their congregations, the people under their care. I'm reminded of something that Bonhoeffer said, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his wonderful book, Life Together. A pastor should not complain about his congregation, certainly never to other people, but also not to God. A congregation has not been entrusted to him in order that he should become its accuser before God and man. It's easy for pastors to criticize their people. It's easier for any of us actually who's in leadership to criticize those under our care. Paul doesn't do it. He's no accuser. He's an encourager. We always thank God for you. In verses four to five, as Paul gets going, he tells us what he's thankful for. And he does, does a thing that he does in a couple of other points in his, his letters, and his writings. He draws together three virtues, the virtues of faith, hope, and love. And these are the things that he wants to give thanks for in the church in Colossae. Very quickly, uh, I want to look at those with you this morning. Faith. This isn't just some sort of vague general religious belief. It's defined in the passage, it's faith in Jesus Christ. Reading on, we discover that this faith is is more than just some uh, fuzzy, internal, yeah, I like Jesus kind of a thing. It's a belief in, in certain 
facts, things that have happened. Look at verse 5. He talks about faith in the word of truth, which the Colossians have heard. Then verse 6, he talks about the gospel that's been bearing fruit since the day you heard it and understood it. The belief is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel's a, a truth that we commit ourselves to. We hear it, understand it, and trust in it. Paul just comes right in here at the start of the letter and he says, I'm thankful to God for your faith. He says of the guys in Colossians, nothing gives me greater joy than to see the faith that you have. Folks, it's one of the things I love most about standing up. See what I'm doing now? I love it because I get to look and there's a sea of faces here. 200 and something of us left after the the kids, the big exodus that happens every morning. So when I'm standing here, I can see, I can see people who've been following Jesus for over 80 years. Some of them for 90 years. It's brilliant. And I see other people from the frontier who've been following Jesus for less than 80 or 90 days. In the last weeks and months, they've, they've come to a point where the gospel has, has come alive to them, where they've responded in faith to Jesus Christ. I see them with eyes open wanting to hear his word. I see them with, with mouths open and hearts open singing his praise. They, they've got new life in Jesus and you can't, you can't quench it. It encourages me no end. So Paul begins by thanking God that the Colossians have grasped the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they've put their faith in Jesus in his saving work on the cross. I know what he's talking about because I get to do that here as your pastor too. By the way, just in passing, see anybody who hasn't done that yet? 2019 could be your year. All right, just saying. Think about it. There's no reason you can't start new life with Jesus Christ now. He's thankful for their faith. He's thankful for their love. That's the second characteristic of this Colossian church that Paul draws attention to. Look at verse 4. Paul thanks God for the love in Colossae for all the saints. I think that's a sure sign that God's really in a place when, when we love each other. Notice that this love isn't limited to, to some sort of club, some sort of people who are somehow like-minded. It isn't a club for middle-class Colossians who kids all go to the same school. It's not not for those who share an interest in a particular sport. No, it's for all the saints. Anyone who shows up in Colossae, anyone who's chosen to follow Jesus, whatever else they may or may not have in common, they are welcome in this place. There's a love that's going to catch them and bring them in. At the end of the passage, verse 8 It's love that Paul singles out as the main element in the news brought to him by Epaphras. Love 
feels like it's a big thing in this church in Colossae. Folks, one of Kirkpatrick's strengths is the breadth and the depth of the community uh, that, that God has placed here. It begins for many people the first time they arrive at Kirkpatrick. I, I get to talk to a lot of the, the newer people around here, so I just, like, if there's one thing I love to hear, it's, it's this, this idea that when, when you arrive, when you're a new person, so many people tell me this, the church is so welcoming. Almost every week when I come, one person speaks to me or another person speaks to me or somebody else speaks to me. Without fail, people just reach out and welcome us. Isn't that brilliant? Let's, let's continue with that. It's beautiful. The thing that I was expecting Mary Rose to come and talk to us about this morning, we'll get her back sometime. Um, we have a thing, a, a visiting team. So for the older members of our church who maybe find it hard to come out of their homes, who maybe can't be with us as often as they'd like, we have a team of people who have started to say, well, if you can't come to us, it doesn't stop us coming to you. Nobody need be alone in a community where there's love. Just before Christmas, I was out with a young woman who's going through some really difficult times And she told me how very grateful she was for the very, very real, practical, loving support she was receiving from her discipleship group. It was brilliant for me to hear that. I feel again like Paul when he heard about the love in Colossae. I look and I I know that there's much of that love here. So Paul's thanked God for the faith. He's thanked God for the the love in Colossae, but he's not finished just yet. Verse 5, he says that this faith and love spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. When Paul talks about hope here, he's not focusing so much on the, the posture of heart that we have. You know, that's what we mostly think of, our hope. He's talking more and focusing more on the thing that we put our hope in. The hope that is stored for you in heaven. It's the solid biblical facts about our future that is secure in Jesus Christ. That's what motivates Christians to to live lives of love. That's what motivates them to keep going in their faith. In the last few days, as I was writing this sermon, I had opportunity to speak to two people whose future is very uncertain on the grounds of their health. I was speaking to a man and a woman. The man I've never had a chance to speak to in in any great depth about what level of faith or, or not he has in Jesus Christ. And I wanted, well, I wanted him to have a hope. But as his pastor, I wanted too to to have some sense of that hope with him and for him. So I wanted to talk to him about that. And I, I don't know, I just felt like I was doing a really bad job of even starting the conversation. So I, I 
It was a really clumsy question. How do you think about God? What place does God have in your life? I think was what I asked him. Because I didn't know. The guy had never communicated anything of that to me. This gentleman had very difficult speech, so I had to strain to hear his response. I've asked him the question, what place does God have in your life? Essential. No room for half measures. That's all I could make out of what he was saying. His hope. I spoke to a woman. She and I just were catching up on her cancer diagnosis. She doesn't know what her future is. She said, I haven't missed a moment's peace since I got the news. I know where I'm going, and whether I live or die, it's a win-win. What a brilliant grasp to have. What a hope. Paul starts a letter that he writes to a bunch of people he doesn't really even know. But he starts by thanking God for them. Saying, I've heard about your, your faith, about your love and your hope. It's brilliant. Every time I think of you, I thank God for you. I know what he's talking about because I get to thank God endlessly for you. That might feel like a, a weird place to finish a sermon. You might be saying, well, is that it? Is that all there is to say about all of us that we're just going to thank God for each other? Christoph, should you not be growing, you know, could we not all be changing? Yeah, yeah, we could. And we'll get a look at that as we go further in the letter. But today we start here and we say with the Apostle Paul for each other, I always thank God every time I think of you for what I see of your faith your love, and your hope. By the way, forget about what the culture tells you. Forget about what maybe some people in your religious past or present have told you. If you're in Jesus Christ, you are enough. You are enough. Let's pray.
Jesus, when you lived among us, you told us that your yoke was easy and your burden was light, and maybe most of us have struggled a lifetime to understand what you mean. But maybe this morning we're getting a bit of a glimpse. Lord, we live in a world where we're surrounded by people who tell us all the ways in which we are not enough. And, Lord, your Spirit inspired your apostle to look on a group of people not unlike us and to say the first word, thank you, Lord, for these people. Lord, I pray that as we come under your grace here, as we start to listen to your voice rather than those voices that that are so pervasive around us, we'll discover your heart that's for us. And we'll discover that when we have Jesus, we have everything we need and far, far more. Be with us as we look at this part of your word these next weeks. But even more than that, be with us as we open our lives to you, to your transforming presence. Amen.